This is not an official podcast of the National Society Daughters of the American Revolution, NSDAR, and does not necessarily represent the position of the NSDAR. This interview is being conducted for the Daughter Dialogues Oral History Project. The interviewer is Risha Rainey. The narrator is Carol Hector Harris. Carol, in what year were you born? 1950. Where were you born? Boston, Massachusetts. How about your parents? Tell me, where were they born? Well, my mother was born in Everett, Massachusetts, and my father was born in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. Tell me a little bit more about them. What did they do for a living? Well, my mother was a homemaker, except for during uh, World War II. She was a Rosie the Riveter at uh, the Charlestown Naval Yard. And Uh, what did she do as a Rosie the Riveter? What does that entail? As far as I know, it meant that they used power tools to install rivets on uh, military armaments. And then my father... For most of my life, he was a mail carrier for the U.S. Postal Service, but um, he had uh, a variety of um, jobs earlier on. One of them included being a typesetter for the African-American newspaper in the early 1920s. Um, I think it was the only African-American newspaper in Boston at the time, so he was a typesetter for them. Um, Do you happen to know the name of the paper? The Guardian. He also had a job as a a printer. Um, I know that while I was a kid, um, he taught swimming at the YMCA. His early career, I don't know that much about it because I was born when my parents were 38. And I remember when they retired. But I know my siblings who are 10 to 16 years older than me, they know much more about what our father did. Tell me about how you have these siblings that were 10 to 16 years older than you. How was, how did that come about? And how was it when you were growing up in the household? Well, I was the oops. My mother told me that her grandmother said that having me late in life would keep her young. My parents thought that they were done with having children. When my brother was born, he's he was 10 years older than me. And so when I was very young, I remember my oldest sister getting married when I was about five years old. And then my next sister got married when I was six. And so their children are close to me in age. In fact, um, many people... Many of the younger folks in the family think that my nieces are in the same generation that I'm in, but it's not. It's their parents. But my oldest sisters, especially the oldest one, she was like almost like an extra mother. I remember her taking me on the train and we would go downtown Boston and she would treat me to Fanny Farmer's. Uh, chocolates. I remember skipping along Winter Street until we got to Tremont Avenue where Fannie Farmers was. And I, I just so loved getting on the train and going to Fannie Farmers to get chocolate. 
I love that a lot. My other two sisters, um, by the time I was in junior high school, they were well into their careers. Uh, my eldest sister worked at the fire department. That was the first place I remember her working. But I also heard that she worked at Mass General Hospital after she left nursing school. But I remember her working for the fire department and then the postal service, like my father did and my mother's brother did. But then my other two sisters, um, the next eldest one, she worked for the state of Massachusetts. And then uh, my next sister was um, a public health nurse. So she worked for the city of Boston in public health. But the both of them really liked to dress well. So they would take me to Bonwood Tellers. And when we got there, I was so impressed that the sales ladies would tell my, would motion to my sisters to come to the back. And there were chairs set up back there. And my sisters and I would sit down and they would roll out these racks of clothes for my sisters. I had never seen anything like that. I thought when you bought stuff at the department store, you would just, you know, go through the racks on the floor and pick what you want, go pay for it. And that was it. But somehow my sisters had this special treatment and, um, those ladies were very happy to please my sisters. Were these and black women, white women? These were white women. And of course, my sisters are black women. So I, I guess um, at that age, race didn't matter a heck of a lot to me. Although I must say, when I was in the sixth grade, when I was 11 years old, that's when I really came to understand race. And I I have to say, that day is etched in my mind. We, the teacher told us to open up our history book. It must have been history. And turn to whatever chapter it was. And it said, Africa, the dark continent. And it showed black people in the most negative kind of way. And my classroom was integrated at that point. I went to the William Lloyd Garrison School, the famous Boston abolitionist who published the Liberator newspaper. But I'll never forget in the sixth grade in that school, my last year in that school, elementary school, we opened to that chapter. And I felt the tension in that classroom. Was the teacher white? Yes. And I'd say the classroom was, I don't know, maybe mostly white. They, there were Irish students and Jewish students because at the time, you know, even though I was born in Boston, I grew up in the Roxbury section. And um, when I was in elementary school, there were a lot of Jewish kids uh, in in that school, some Irish, maybe a few Italian, but then the rest African American. But we were called colored then. You know, when I started out, I was a colored kid. Then I was a Negro, and then I became black and proud Afro American, and now I'm an African American or an African. But anyway, back to my sisters in the department store. 
I had somewhat of an understanding of race then. I was in junior high, not not but maybe two years at the most after really feeling what race is all about in that sixth grade classroom in 1961. But I felt pretty special to be there with my sisters and see them treated so well. I was very proud of them that they were treated so well. And as it turned out, the clothes that they that they purchased, when they were tired of them, I got the hand-me-downs. So in a way, I kind of got a preview of what I was going to wear years later. But they were high-quality clothes. And I think that between seeing them and what they chose and learning how to sew. My, my mother taught me how to sew, and I mean really tailor garments. And I spent many a Saturdays taking the train to downtown Boston and going to the department stores and looking at patterns. And my mother taught me how to blend maybe the, the, the skirt part of a pattern and the upper part from another pattern. But then I would go to the garment district, which was near Chinatown after I picked out my patterns, and I would pick out fabric. And I got to really learn the difference in cheap fabric, the difference between um, cheap cotton and linen. And I really, to this day, love linen. Um, I saw the different weights of silk. And so I would choose these fabrics based on what it was I was trying to make with the patterns I just picked out. And I would come home and my mother would clear off the kitchen table and I would spread out my patterns and spread out my fabric and use the pinking shears to cut out um, all of those pieces. And I'd run upstairs and get on the sewing machine because after a while, I could just stitch those pieces together without um, basting the patterns to the fabric. I got pretty good. By the time I was in high school, I was sewing a lot of the clothes that I wore to school. So I really, I really enjoyed sewing a lot. Were you involved in any extracurricular activities in school? Well, from the time I was in kindergarten, when I was five years old, I went to dancing school, uh, Mildred Kennedy Braddock's Dancing School in Boston. And I continued to go to that dancing school from the time I was five until... I left for college in 1968. I went. What to type U- of dance did you study? It was uh, ballet, modern jazz, tap, um, that kind of thing. But I really liked tap dancing, and um, I remember seeing the Nicholas Brothers in old movies, and I just loved how they tap danced. I saw Sammy Davis Jr. tap dance. We would um, go out and perform at a variety of community functions, including the ones where organizations that my parents belonged to, they would have um, cocktail parties or they would have um, conventions or 
um, dinners, fundraisers, stuff like that. And their organizations would contact our dancing school and our dancing school teacher would have us come and we would be the entertainment. So my parents were very proud of that. How about other activities? Um, well, I was on the debate team in the fifth and sixth grade in elementary school. I was on the student council. And the same thing when I got to high school, I was on the student council every year. And then um, during the senior year, I was elected senior class secretary. Um, But at the church, there was an organization called the Girls Friendly Society. And um, I I enjoyed belonging to that group. Uh, I think I joined when I was in the sixth grade, when I was 11 years old, and I continued until probably when I was about 14. And one of the greatest things about the Girls Friendly Society, in addition to making friends, and I'm a very social person, uh, we would go on trips and I like to travel. My family loved to travel. And so that was extra special by being a member of the Girls Friendly Society at at St. Cyprian's Church in Boston, where um, all of my my family on my mother's side and uh, family friends, all of that, they they all attended the same church. Did you feel like you were growing up as an only child since your siblings were so much older than you and out of the house? Yes. In fact, when I was five years old, my mother came to me and asked me what I like to be a big sister. And of course, I couldn't wait. So she told me that she didn't want me to grow up like an only child. And she thought that I would like to have a big sister. So that began my parents opening up their home to foster children. By the time I graduated from high school, I had at least 74 foster brothers and sisters. And I say foster because They're categorized that way because we are not blood, but we were all raised together. So they are, to this moment, my brothers and sisters. We never call each other foster brother or sister because we weren't raised that way. 74 Uh, sounds like an enormous number. It is an enormous number, but of course they weren't all in the house at the same time. I think we had all black or yes, all black children. And um, we had a fairly large house in Roxbury. So I think the largest number was at any given time, time was 13. But that happened because my first foster uh, brother and sister were a brother and sister. And then another girl came. And as each one came, my mother would say, would you like to have another brother or another sister? And of course I was too excited. And so when the third one came, she was with us for a few years. And then my mother found out that two of her siblings were in another foster home. So my mother said, well, I think they should all be reared in the same home. And so my brother, my, my mother brought, um, her brother and her sister. Then my mother found out that they had another sister in foster care. So my mother brought her so that they could all be raised together. Then I had other 
siblings, well, foster brothers and sisters who were real biological brothers and sisters. And um, my mother wanted everybody, if they were in foster care, to all be raised in the same place all together as one family. So it sounds like you were always excited about this. You didn't feel like it was an intrusion upon your attention that you could get from your parents? No, I never did. Well, did it add extra work for you? Oh. Did you have to help with more chores as a result? <laughs> Let me tell you something. When I think, again, when I turned 11, there was a lot going on when I turned 11 years old. But after church, um, if fried chicken was on the menu, I would have to cut up six whole chickens because my mother bought whole chickens because it was too expensive to buy cut up chicken. So I used to cut up, I learned how to cut up six chickens and fry them. We had a deep fryer and a large cast iron uh, frying pan, but that didn't uh, stop me from having to peel potatoes and and other vegetables. And all of us girls did that. But I got to tell you, washing dishes was really something else. Um, that sure, the boys would uh, sweep the floor and take out the trash, but the girls had to do dishes. And for a week, each one of us would have to wash and the others would dry. And of course, when you're, wa- you're the only one washing dishes, the ones who were drying were moving pretty fast. And so they would get real disgusted when you weren't going as fast washing them dishes and rinsing them off as they were drying them off. But hey, and my mother seemed like she was always washing clothes. Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays were days to wash clothes. And we didn't have a dryer back then. So all of the clothes went out on the back porch lines. There were two of them. And there was a line that went from the sun porch up on the second floor uh, across the garage to a tree. And so that's where all of the clothes were hung out, no matter what um, what season. I remember when those pulleys used to freeze up in the winter, but we still had to pull real hard to pull those clothes in. And then they were stiff as a board, so to thaw them out, we would put old towels on top of the radiators um, and laid the clothes on top of the towels because if you laid the clothes on top of the radiators they might get a um, stain from the radiators. What kind of family outings did you get to enjoy? Oh boy it was great. We went to beaches uh, down on Cape Cod. We would catch the boat over to Martha's Vineyard Uh, The family has a history um, of living on Martha's Vineyard. Um, One of my grandmother's first cousins married a gentleman who grew up on Martha's Vineyard. Um, I don't remember what church it was, but the church recruited his father from Barbados. And they moved from Barbados to uh, Martha's Vineyard. And like I said, my grandmother's first cousin married their son. And so we would go over to Martha's Vineyard definitely to go swimming at the Inkwell in particular. But um, we also had a good time because there was family over there who lived there. And then there were other family members who had second homes there. And um, so, hey, going to Martha's Vineyard or going to the beach on Cape Cod 
where my father and my uncle Jake used to dig big holes in the sand and do a, a layered clam bake. I mean, I'm telling you, those were those were the days. How do you do a clam bake in the sand? Well, you cut a big hole and um, they would gather seaweed and they would layer the different food separated by seaweed. Um, they'd first put uh, charcoal down the bottom as best as I can remember. It was charcoal down the bottom and they would get the charcoal going and then seaweed. And then I think the potatoes went next because they took a long time to cook. And then um, ears of corn, there would be a layer of seaweed, then ears of corn. And then after that, there'd be a layer of seaweed. And next came the uh, clams and crabs and lobsters. And they would cover it over in some more seaweed and just let it steam. And I'm telling you, <laughs> we would not, we could not wait to eat. I mean, we couldn't wait to get to those lobsters. We all we all love lobster. Plus, my father was the president of the hunting and fishing club in Boston most of my life. So we always had fish because my father was always going fishing. When my father came home, he would have a big basin full of fish in the trunk of his car. And all the women on the street used to say, hey, Mr. Hector, what you got? And they would all be at the back end of my father's station wagon getting fish. And I would be so glad that they would get that fish because the other job I had, whatever fish was left over that came in the house, I had to gut it, skin it, fillet it, everything before it got wrapped up in brown paper and went into the freezer in the basement. So we always had fish, but honest to goodness, I was hoping those women would take a lot of that fish. So Do you still fry chicken today? I can fry chicken today like a champ. <laughs> <laughs> I can fry fish like a champ too. In fact, there's not really that much that I don't know how to cook. And there's some things like spaghetti sauce that I don't know how to make a small portion of it. I only know how to make enough for 15 because that's pretty much the number of people who ate on spaghetti Wednesdays and then maybe left over um, on the weekend. Although on Fridays we had fish Every Friday during Lent, we have fish on Wednesday and Friday, so not spaghetti on Wednesday. And on Saturdays, we had um, fish cakes usually from codfish. My mother would um, soak codfish and make codfish cakes out of that. So we had that and New England baked beans on Saturdays. Sometimes we had Frank's. I'd make New England baked beans in a pot in the oven. When I bake beans, I don't take canned beans and do something with those to try to make them taste and look homemade. I make the original baked beans. But, you know, there's nothing that I can't cook because I learned to cook for a gang most every night, except for when we got older. Most of us kids got jobs especially during the 60s in the summer when they were trying to keep kids off the streets during the summer. 
the Urban League and some of the other community organizations, they had summer work programs. And so we all got jobs in the summer work programs. And then we, because we like to have our own money, we ended up getting jobs after school while we were in junior high and high school. And what that did was that allowed us to buy the school clothes and the Easter clothes that we wanted because my mother only had so much money to spend for all the kids. After high school, did you go on to college? I did. I went to UMass Amherst. Uh, I had a. I could have gone to the New England Conservatory of Music because, like I said, I had gone to dancing school from the time I was five until I was in high school, and I wanted um, a dance career. But my father thought that wasn't a good career for a girl, period. So he decided I needed to go to college and be a nurse like my sister Beverly. So off to UMass Amherst, I went to major in nursing. But I, you know, kept my desire for the arts. And I'll never forget, I was sitting in chemistry class one day trying to be a nurse. And the the professor started talking about the fluoride atom or the fluorine atom, one or the other. And when he started talking about bumping an atom to a new energy level, I was lost. So I went to him and I said, you know what? I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to be a nurse because I'm not going to get through your class because at this point, I am lost. I have no idea what you're talking about. So he said, well, Carol, I'll tell you what. You come to every class and you do your homework and I will pass you. And I thought, great, I can do that. So I went back to my dorm room and I called my mother and I said, Ma, you know what? I don't want to be a nurse like Beverly. I want to major in speech and theater. So my mother said, I'll be right back. And I heard her put the phone down and I heard her slippers clicking on the floor as she went into the living room where I knew my father would be sitting. And I heard my mother say, Harold, that girl doesn't want to be a nurse. She wants to uh, major in speech and theater. And she's got a right to choose what she wants to do in her own life. And I could just imagine my father taking his glasses off and listening to my mother because my father always sat in his recliner and he read. He read voraciously. He knew something about everything. But anyway, I could not hear what he was saying. And I heard my mother's slippers clicking on the floor back to the phone and I heard her pick it up and she said, Carol, you can go ahead and major in whatever you want. So I was one happy person that day. And um, after that, I, well, I changed my major at UMass Amherst. And then I decided to come back to Boston to Emerson College because it was a college for the arts. And one of my cousins had gone there and majored in acting and had become an actress in New York. So anyway, I transferred, I applied and transferred back to Emerson College in Boston. While I was a student there, my brother, who is really my fo- one of my foster brothers, he went to Vietnam. But unbeknownst to me and his sisters, before he left, he went through our photo albums and took a bunch of pictures out. The next thing we know, we were getting letters from guys all over the place, wherever he, <laughs> wherever he was stationed. And that ended up being the way 
that I met my husband. My brother ended up in Vietnam. He was showing off the pictures and stuff. And I got a, a letter from this guy in Vietnam. And out of all of the letters that I received from these guys, this was the only guy who knew how to write a complete sentence, starting with a capital letter and a period at the end, and he knew how to spell. Well, this was before I knew I was going to end up being a journalist. But somehow, that was important to me. This man knew how to write, and he knew how to, to indent for a paragraph. And like I said, he wrote in complete sentences, in a complete thought, punctuated the thing properly and everything. He was in the military stationed with your brother? Yeah, in Vietnam, in the Marines. Yep. So you married a Marine? I married a Marine. Um, Once we got married, I moved here to Columbus, Ohio, which is where he's from. Um, He and his family had a business. Did you continue your studies? I did. I went to the Ohio State University and finished my degree in journalism and um, worked a couple of years as a reporter. And because the, um, the station offered tuition reimbursement, I decided to uh, work on my master's degree part-time. And my master's degree is in international politics with a focus on sub-Saharan Africa because at that point, I wanted to work as a foreign correspondent. And the networks were opening bureaus in sub-Saharan Africa at the time. But the way life goes, by the time I graduated, they closed down those bureaus. So I never got a, an opportunity to be the foreign correspondent in sub-Saharan Africa that I planned. But, you know, I've learned over all of these years, more than 40 years as a journalist, that you really, you really can't predict where you're going to go. I have been very fortunate to be a African-American woman in an industry like that and be in it for so long. But it called for being flexible. And Did you have, finish your studies there, though? I Oh, yeah. I finished, I finished my master's degree at the Ohio State University. Um, and uh, I, after that, I, I had a job. I got a job as a reporter at a radio station in Flint, Michigan. And I stayed there for a year, and I... Ended up coming back to Columbus and took a job with um, the state legislature doing communications for five um, senators in the Ohio legislature. And then from there, uh, I got appointed to a position as the director of the Office of Public Information for when I started off, it was the Public Welfare Agency, and then it became the Department of Human Services. And today... It's job and family services. But I would have never imagined that my career would take that turn. I thought I would be a reporter forever. And um, when that administration changed while I was working in the state human services agency, I got fired along with most other senior African-Americans. And... um, A week after I got fired, I had planned a vacation to Antigua. 
And so I thought, what the heck, when I packed my T-shirts and my baseball cap and my shorts and stuff, I packed my resume. I had been to Antigua before. And so when I got there, I, you know, found my friends and stuff. And I said, hey, you know what? I just got fired from my job. And I explained what went on. And they were like, really? I said, yeah, I got fired. And so I'm looking. So on their days off, they would pick me up at the resort and take me around to different places so I could apply for a job. Your friends were working in Antigua? Well, I, from previous vacations, I had made friends. Was your husband traveling with you? No, he wasn't on that trip. He's probably just working and couldn't get away. That happened a lot. Um, So I went around looking for a job and I got one uh, at the cable television station. And um, I was the only woman on the production crew and definitely the only African-American. So you accepted the job? Oh, yeah, I accepted the job right away because... Hey, I was unemployed. And even though it meant moving to Antigua, I am lucky that I have the kind of husband who is very supportive. And he understands that there's only so many jobs for a journalist in any given town anyway. And so off I went to Antigua. And my family loved it because, hey, that gave them a place to visit on vacation. And they didn't have to worry about staying in a hotel. They could just stay with me. Did you have children at this time? I did. I had two sons. and How old were um, they? They had become accustomed to me being away when I went to Flint, Michigan. They had learned how to pack up their little stuff and their toys. And they would hop in the car with my husband, you know, their dad. And they would make the trip from Columbus up to Flint. And so they would leave on a Sunday afternoon and, and head back to Columbus. So your husband basically raised them by himself quite often. Quite often. Yes, quite often. How old were they when you were in Antigua? Um, Let me see. I went to Antigua in um, 91. So my youngest son was in high school and my oldest son was in college. How long did you stay there? I was there for three years because the economy, the recession in the United States, the UK, and in Canada, the recession hit. The economy went bad. And so when there's a a recession in a place where most of their tourists come from, their economy goes all the way down. So I had to move back home, and I did. And I worked as a consultant uh, for a few years. And then I started teaching in the public school system. As a substitute teacher, you get thrown in to anything and everything. I was even teaching shop for boys. But for some kind of, I don't know, I'm a flexible kind of person. And so when I'm given something to do, I try my best to do it. You know, I I don't know, somewhere along the line, I learned that failure wasn't really an option. And I was big on not embarrassing myself because I was taught that you never do anything to embarrass the family. I mean, nothing at all, including yourself. So, so I did that for a couple of years. Then in 96, 
Uh, my sister called me, my second to oldest sister called me and said, Carol, knowing that I was um, substitute teaching, she says, Carol, uh, would you think you'd like to work for FEMA? And I said, FEMA? What the heck is a FEMA? And so she explained that it was the Federal Emergency Management Agency and they did disaster recovery. And this is during the Clinton administration. And um, the Clinton administration put a word, put the word out that the agency needed to hire more African-Americans. So I applied and I got hired. And so I, this was in, yeah, 96. And so I started being deployed to various disaster operations around the country. I was doing external affairs. That's where all of the journalists are. I was also in research and writing sometime. And the people in research and writing, they write the news releases. They write the public service announcements. They write the media advisories, that kind of thing. But I preferred doing media relations because of my experience as a broadcast reporter. But I was also a congressional liaison officer. And in that job, I kept the federally elected officials aware of the recovery and, of course, the senators. I also worked in intergovernmental affairs, and that meant that I was doing the same thing, but this time with the state elected officials, the state legislators. How long did you stay with FEMA? Well, I started in 96, part-time uh, disaster operations. Then in 98, I got a full-time job with FEMA in New York Region 2. And in that region... Uh, we, under that region, are the states of New York and New Jersey, the territory of the U.S. Virgin Islands, and the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. So I would be deployed to disaster operations in those jurisdictions. Did you retire from FEMA? What did you do after that? I left FEMA in 2006 to take a full-time job with a Beltway consulting firm that got the contract to do the housing restoration after Katrina in Louisiana. Knowing that it was going to, it meant being there for only a year, I went. Because when I saw what happened in Louisiana, I, I just, it was just heartbreaking. And it's not that one disaster, you know, reporters would always ask, well, is this the worst disaster you've ever seen? How do you answer that question when you know the person who's affected, this is the worst thing they've ever seen. So they're all different. And so they hired me as their chief spokesperson. I stayed there a year and I was talking to one of my former FEMA colleagues after I left Louisiana. And he said, Carol, how would you like to come back to your FEMA family. I said, I would love it. And so they hired me back. And that was in 2008. And where did you go? Um, I was again, working part-time, deployed all over the country, wherever they needed me. So it sounds like most of your career, you were away from home and your oh, husband. Yes. A lot of my career, I was away from home. But here's the other thing. When they would come to visit me wherever I was and whether it was it was them visiting me or me coming home in between disaster deployments, it was a reunion. It was 
I don't know. It was an occasion to celebrate. Are you still married? Yes. I have two sons. And during my career, you know, I didn't have daughters. So I felt like I needed to show boys that women can do it. That women can hold their own. It was hard to be away. It was hard. But this is the job that I had. It was the opportunity I was given. And I made the most of it. I learned a lot. And I told them a lot. So in a very big way, they were with me. I I won't say they didn't miss me. But I think the times we were away from each other, I don't think it was as bad as it might have been because we were still able to keep that bond. How did you become interested in researching your family and genealogy? Well, I was the youngest of all my siblings, as I said before. And at a very young age, I started seeing people in my family pass away. And I didn't get to know those people, but they did. So I envied it. And so one day I was sitting on the edge of my parents' bed and I was talking to my father about what I don't remember. But I saw this huge Bible at the bottom of the end table. So I pulled it out. And I opened the front of it and I saw all of these names of who names of people I recognized. It had their birth date, what time they were born, what the weather was like. And I asked my fam- my father, whose Bible is this? And he said, oh, it's your grandmother's. She gave it to me. You know, my father was an only child. But my grandmother, being the oldest of her siblings and her cousins, Somehow, every time somebody was born, my grandmother was putting that information into this Bible. So in my mid-20s, it's around 75 when my um, youngest son was born. At that point, I decided that I was going to start writing down what I knew about the family. And then when I didn't have a birth certificate or a Chris or a baptism record or a death certificate, I would write away the vital statistics for it and I would get it and I would compile it. And little by little, I started putting together this tree. And um, my grandmother, because I was the youngest and she and my grandfather, this is my, my paternal grandmother, I spent a lot of summers with her because my mother used to tell me I need to get out of the city of Boston and go get some fresh country air. And my grandmother and grandfather lived in Mansfield, which is south of Boston. And my grandmother used to tell everybody's business. What are some of the most notable or memorable stories that resonate with <laughs> you that you've heard? More than anything, she loved her grandfather. And I found out about him. He had served in the Civil War. And my grandmother was proud of her grandfather. And she talked about how she grew up on his farm. 
and that his farm was the only farm on the street at the time and that that street was named after him because he was a Civil War veteran and he had the only property on that street. So Tyler Street in the Hyde Park section of Boston is named after my grandmother's grandfather. She talked about her own father and how he would walk from Norton, which is a community south of Boston, and would walk to the city of Boston and that he would be gone for days or weeks at a time. But my grandmother said that every time her father came home, her mother got pregnant. And she kind of resented that because being the oldest, she would have to take care of her brother and sisters quite a bit. But she still loved them all. What did you uncover in your research? Well, when my sister Beverly retired in 2006, that's when she decided to join me in doing this family research. Now, mind you, she knew some of these people who had passed on, like I said, You know, they were dying away when I was a a little kid, but she and my other siblings knew them. So when Beverly knew that I was doing this family history research and stuff, she jumped right in it. But she enjoyed research. She's a practitioner, retired practitioner now. But she liked doing medical research. But she loved doing research, period. So... Let's see. It must have been 2010. I went to Boston because one of my best girlfriends who was in that classroom in the sixth grade when we opened our book to Africa, the dark continent for her birthday party. And uh, after the festivities, I went to my sister Beverly's house and I had told her, well, we're going to try to get some research done while I'm in Boston. So go to her house and all over her dining room table. She had these file folders, just like you would imagine a doctor would in his office. She had file folders with information that we had been collecting. And now, mind you, I'm working full time most of this time. So we're talking back and forth. And luckily, she was in Boston. So she would be able to go get records that I, before that, would have had to send away for. So here I am at her dining room table in April. 2010. And I said, Beverly, where are we? Where are we stuck? And she said, well, Carol, I'm stuck at Chloe Jacobs. And she said, I can't find anything about her family. I said, well, the heck with it. I'm going to Google Chloe Jacobs. Now, mind you, Beverly's 13 years older than me. So when I said, I'm going to Google Chloe Jacobs, and I got up and went to her computer, she said, you're going to do what? Because it, I think in her mind, it sounded like I was getting ready to do something to Chloe. But meanwhile, you know, she well, had been dead Chloe forever. Jacobs? Well, Chloe, as it turns out, she is our third great-grandmother. That's where Beverly was stuck. At our third, at the point of our third. Maternal or paternal? This is on my father's side. This is paternal. And it's real interesting because all of this information um, that we were able to roll out from there are all on the female side. It's just really extraordinary to me that all of this is on my paternal grandmother's family. 
But anyway, she was stuck at Chloe Jacobs. And I said, I'm going to Google her. And I got on Beverly's com- computer and I Googled Chloe Jacobs. And up popped this document that was compiled by um, David Allen Lambert, who Lambert, who's a member of the um, Historic Genealogical Society in Boston. And the document said some early African-American families in 18th and 19th century Stoughton. And I'm like, I don't see any Chloe Jacobs here. But you know how you Google stuff and what you thought you were going to get just didn't come up. And because something did, you just decided to read it. Well, that's what we did. And when the document came up, Beverly said, oh, I know David Allen Lambert. He's a member of this historic historical society, just like I am. I was like, really? And she said, oh, yeah. So I started in the 1790 census, because that's where the document began. And I knew from having worked for the U.S. Census Bureau that the 1790 census was the first that was ever conducted. And so I'm, you know, scrolling through this document. I see the 1790, and in it, there were the name, there was the names of three guys, an Isaac Williams, a Samson Dunbar, and a Quark Martrick. And I said, Beverly, what kind of name is Quark? But then I just kept going and the document went from there to the 1800, the 1810, the 1830. I'm still looking for Chloe till the 1840. And then in the 1850 census, I started seeing the names of people that I recognized. And so I went on to 1860 And then in the back of that document, for whatever reason, he ended up focusing on my family and and basically did a biographical sketch of my family. So with that, we started putting the names of people together. We recognized the Campbell family right away because those, those are my grandmother's cousins. And with Boston Alexander Campbell, we found Chloe Jacobs. She was born in Londonderry, Canada. We don't know how or why she ended up there, but ended up being born there, but she was. And from this document, we were able to go back all the way back to the 1790 census until we found that man, Quark Martrick, was our ancestor listed in the 1790 census. So I thought, well, what the heck? I'm going to I'm going to Google Quark Martrick. So at that point, Beverly was interested in me. She was interested in me Googling people because we just found this the sound astounding set of information for three generations. It was like, hey, let's Google everybody. So I Googled Quark Martrick. And lo and behold, it came up that he had a military record because he served in the Revolutionary War. And I was like, he served in the Revolutionary War? This is a black guy? In my, in my whole life. I'm telling you, I'm 60 years old and I had never heard. I was 60 at that point. I had never heard that there were black people in the Revolutionary War. And so we sent away for his 
military record. In the meantime, we found out about this book called Forgotten Patriots, African-American and American Indian Patriots in the Revolutionary War. Never heard of that book before. But, of course, we had to order that book. And we each had to have a copy because I'm in Columbus and she's in Boston. And so we sent away for the book and got the book. And then here comes Quark Matrix's um, military service record. And it had his birth date in the record. It said he was born June 2nd, 1756, born in Africa. Now, when I started out in 1975, remember, I am a child of the 60s. I grew up when James Brown told us to be black and proud. And so I have always wanted, not did I only want to know about my family history, I wanted to know where in Africa did we come from. So believe me when I tell you that we found Quark Matrix military record and it said he was born June 2nd, 1756 in Africa, you could have knocked me over with a feather. I, I could not, I just, I just couldn't believe it. I just, I just, I couldn't believe it. Now, here's the other thing. After that, for three years, Beverly and I were busy looking for his slave master because in addition to the fact that we were never told that anyone, any black people served in the Revolutionary War, we were told that all black people who came to this country were slaves. So we spent three years looking for this man's slave master and couldn't find a slave master who always told you that school we learned that in school that that black people came to this country we were all slaves nobody ever said that anybody came here free i had to be working on my phd and take an african colloquium class with an african professor to find out more about africans who came here free but I didn't know anything about that. And to think we spent three years looking for somebody who didn't exist. Well, fast forward from that to 2013. I was still at that point working for FEMA. But in the back of my head, I had always wanted to go to Ohio University in Athens because when I was a journalism student in um, at the Ohio State University, um, I had gone to a communications week that they had at Ohio University. And I saw that those students had a much better journalism education, better broadcast facility than we had at Ohio State. So in the back of my mind, I always felt like, boy, if I ever go back to school, I'm going to go to Ohio University. So here I am, I'm getting older. And I'm thinking, if I'm ever going to go to school, it ought to be now. So I went for a visit. And a professor in the School of Journalism, Scripps School of Journalism, told me that I should apply. And so I did. And I got accepted in August 
2013, so I retired from FEMA in August 2013, and off to Ohio University I went. Where was Cork Martrick from? You said he was from Africa, yeah. but do you know which country in Africa? Well, let me tell you something. My brother was on his deathbed, and Beverly being the practitioner, and here she and I had taken um, the DNA test 23andMe. I don't think we had done Family Tree at that point, or maybe she had. But anyway, when Beverly knew that our brother wasn't going to make it, she asked him if he minded if she took a swab of his saliva to submit for a DNA test. And I tell you, my brother's DNA test is the test that keeps on giving. The first result that we got from his DNA test said we had Ga Adengbe heritage. And just like I didn't know that name, Quark Matrick, I didn't know what Ga Adengbe was either. So what do I do? I Googled it, of course, and I found out that they're one of the larger ethnic groups in Ghana. By this time, we realized that our ancestor's name really was Quark. But um, when we first discovered he was our ancestor and it said Quark, and his name is spelled in a variety of different ways in that Forgotten Patriots book. It must be at least six or seven different ways they spelled his last name and the same thing for his first name. But anyway, um, we thought that his name ended up being Quark because they misspelled it and that his name is really Kwaku because we knew the name Kwaku and associated it with Ghana. And so when my brother's DNA test came back and it said God Dengbe and I Googled God Dengbe. They were one of the largest ethnic groups in Ghana. So we were like, oh my God, this is his ethnic group right here. So I'm still at Ohio University. And one day after I finished teaching, I was walking through the basement of the journalism school. And on the wall in the glass case, there was a poster that said Ghana, uh, governance, journalism, and society. And I thought, wow, there's some people from Ghana coming here. So I ran to the car, got the cell phone. I said, Beverly, you're not going to believe it, but there's some people from Ghana. They're coming to a OU. You know I'm going to go because I want to see if they can help us find out more than we know now. So I go to that meeting, and there's no one there from Ghana. But what it is is it's a study abroad program to Ghana. So I applied, I got accepted, and I went. And I found my family. It was, it, even for a journalist, it's hard to put into words looking in the faces of people who have been in one place ever since your ancestor left there. But because he left and never came back, our connection as a family, that link had been broken for 250 years. But when I found them, 
that was, it was something even getting to, to see them. Oh my goodness. I was my first day in Ghana. We were at the host university. It was Africa University College of Communications. It was all of us Ohio University students in the boardroom. And the students, the student government students came to meet us. And they talked about their school and what they did as members of student government. Then the next thing we know, we're all going to have lunch together. And so one of the professors came in the room and she said, oh, wait a minute. I see Ohio University on this side and I see Africa University College of Communication on this side. I don't like that. You all get up right now and mix it up. So we did. And I ended up at a table with three women. And um, one of the women said to me, so, Carol, are you here in Ghana to study something in particular? I said, oh, heck, yeah. I'm trying to find my family. I said, I found out through DNA tests that we have Ga'adengbe heritage. So I'm trying to find someone who's Ga'adengbe plus my family. Don't you know, one of those women raised her hand and she said, I'm Ga'adengbe. Well, I tell you that table and those chairs couldn't get out the way fast enough for us to, we got up and just hugged like we were stuck together by super glue. And the women started cheering and clapping and screaming. And then everybody else in the room said, what's going on? What's going on? And one of the women said, Carol found a relative. Carol found a relative. And now these are all journalism students, right? So you know they got their skills, their still camera and their video cameras out. Meanwhile, me and this newfound cousin, we are hugging like there's no tomorrow. And they're all yelling, stop hugging, turn around. We want to take your picture. So we stopped hugging and we turned around and looked and people started saying, oh, we see the resemblance. We see how you must be related. And it began from there. I, I could not even, even telling you this and reliving it, I can hardly believe it happened. I was in Ghana 24 hours when I met a DNA cousin. The next day, I'm back at the same school, but in another room, a large, like a performance classroom. And we were all in there because these drummers and a dance teacher were there to teach the students African dance. Well, I didn't need to learn it because I had gone to dance school most of my life. Plus, I was preparing for an interview with a professor at the University of Ghana because by that time, one of the professors heard that I was trying to find my family. I guess that story went through that school like wildfire because this professor, he appointed himself to help me get information. And so he made this arrangement with this professor who is an international authority on the slave trade and religion. This professor arranged for me to have an interview with this expert. So I was preparing rather than being taught African dance. I was preparing because, you know, you never want to embarrass yourself and you don't want to embarrass the family. And here I am in a brand new country. And so I'm preparing. I'm reading stuff. I'm putting my questions together, everything. So while I'm sitting there doing that, 
the lead drummer comes over to me. I had met him the day before. And he says, oh, Carol, it's so good to see you again. And I said, well, nice to see you too. And he said, what are you doing? And I told him that I was preparing for this interview. And I reached down in my bag and I said, you know, I know this family is here in Ghana because I Googled this name before I left the States, but I couldn't connect with this guy because there was something where our service would not connect. So I'm trying to find this family. Well, one of the drummers was sitting on the other side of me and he saw that paper and he said, oh, I know that family. They live in Bigadah. I'm from Bigadah. My uncle is a chief. Would you like him to take you to meet them? Well, here again in my life, you could have knocked me over with a feather because I don't know this man from Adam. He's just sit, he just happens to be sitting there beside me while I'm talking to his boss. And so I said to him, yeah, I would love for your uncle to take me to meet this family. And so he gets out his cell phone and calls his uncle right then and there's uncles at work. So he gets off the phone and he asked me if I had a cell phone. I gave him my number. He said, I will call you tonight. And so he did call me that night and he explained to me that, well, we just can't go out of nowhere and take you to the family. You have to go to a council of elders to get permission. You know, it's not like in the United States where you feel like going to somebody's house, you just kind of roll up or you call them and let them know you're coming. It's not like that at all. You got to get permission. And so um, my professor made the arrangement for me to have a car and a driver and this young man to go with me to Kokrobity, it's a community west of Accra, the capital of Ghana. And I met this council of elders and I told him every single thing that I ever learned about Quark Matric and how I wanted to meet my family and restore that link that had been broken for more than 250 years. And this young man translated everything I said to this council of elders that I was seated before. And they took it all in. They were all serious. They took it all in. And so they started deliberating. And this young man was saying, Auntie, everything is going well. They heard what you said. They're talking about it. And he was giving me a blow by blow of the conversation. And um, finally, they decided they would let this chief take me to meet the family. They lived in, they live in Bigada, which is on the far eastern side of Ghana, right at the mouth of the Volta River. If you know anything about the geography of Ghana, the Volta River is one of the largest in the nation. And um, Bigada is like a fishing village right at the mouth of the river where it meets um, the ocean. So my professor, this young man, the chief, and one of the journalism students, my pr professor told, uh, when we all met to met for lunch one day, my professor told the students that I had the opportunity to meet my family. And he asked them which one of them wanted to be the videographer to record 
this entire event. And, you know, they were all jumping at it. I mean, you know, these are journalists. And so I said, well, I only want the best. So, you know, a few of them said, I'm the best, I'm the best. So I picked one and off we went with the driver, the videographer, the the chief, the young man, and I. We set out for Big Ada. We get to the village and um, we have to get out the car and walk down this rocky, kind of like an alley. And when we got to um, the place where the family lived, there was a huge, well, everyone has a wall around their home in Ghana, pretty much. And this house was just like that. And it had a huge, ornate gate, metal, beautiful. It, it seemed like it was pulsating in the bright sun. So the chief told me, he said, go ahead and knock. And I did. And this woman opened the gate, swung open a huge gate. And there they were seated on different stumps, stumps of different height and some stools. They were all seated under a tree. And as I walked toward them, we were looking curiously at each other. And then the closer I got, the more we started to smile. And they had me sit down. And the young man who had interpreted for me with the Council of Elders, he sat beside me. And he interpreted everything I said to them about their long-lost son. They told me how it was that young people were allowed to go back then. And this whole story about all of that is going to be in this book that I plan to write about my ancestor and discovering my family. But they sat there and they listened intently about everything that I had to say. Then they decided that I needed a family name. So the women and the men, they stood up. And I didn't know what was going to happen, but the young man said to me, oh, auntie, they're going to give you a name. So they deliberated and they were serious. I mean, the body language, I did not understand a word, but I knew that this was some kind of serious kind of deliberation that was going on. And then when they arrived at a name, everybody's body like relaxed and they were smiling. And then they told me that the name I got, anytime I come to that village, everybody would know what home I belonged to. It was some kind of an experience to me. What was the name? Akatu. Akatu. And they told me the last name Martrick had been corrupted, that the family last name is Marty. And they told me that if I ever go to England and find people from Ghana with the last name Martin, they are my relatives because the last name Marty in Ghana had been corrupted in England to become Martin. So my name in Ghana is Akutu Marty. And they said that that name is a portion of the name of a warrior. 
because they said that I beat back all odds to come back to them. And I told them that I had brought their long lost son back to them and me. And that that chain, that bond of family would never be broken again. I meant it. And we are still in touch today. Did that experience change you connecting with or restoring that broken bond? Well, it meant that my grandchildren, my sons and my grandchildren would have a connection to Africa that I started looking for when I became black and proud that I started wondering, wow, where in Africa do we come from? It was, oh my God, what an experience. Then the woman who I met at Africa University College of Communication, who is Ga Adengbe, she took me to Somanya to meet her, to her home where she grew up, to her mother's house. We took two buses and two cabs to get there. The second cab, we get out at her mother's house and I'm halfway. I have half of my body out of the cab and the other half in and I froze because I looked at this woman who reminded me of my grandmother. I just, I'm telling you, I froze and I was staring at her. And when I caught myself, I said to my DNA cousin, Sang Morky, I said, Sang Morky, if that lady asks you why I'm staring at her, tell her that she reminds me so much of my grandmother. And she said, oh, that's my aunt. That's my mother's sister. I was like, what? They motioned for me to have a seat, and I did. And they're talking in their language. I have no idea what they're talking about. But this woman, when she laughed, she threw her head back like my grandmother did. When she got up to walk inside the house, she walked like my grandmother did with arthritic knees. And I'm thinking, wow, you can remove us from the continent. But the DNA, it's still there. You can't do anything with this DNA that we have. It goes nowhere. And if we observe enough, we will see each other and we will see how connected that we are. Did you find out why Quag Martrick came over to the United States? You said that the village elders talked about that the young people were able to go then, but why did he come? Did you ever get that answer? I don't know specifically the circumstances for him. I know from the story that they told me how he likely got caught up in it and went because, you know, like I say, he was born June 2nd, 1756. And the first record we find of him is in the revolutionary war. But where he first arrived once he came west, we don't know. Why were the other young people leaving Ghana at that time? Maybe that will shed some light on why he left as well. Well, I'll tell you this much. The man said to me, he said, you know, back then people had 12, 15 children. And they were very worried about the future of their children and how they would be able to care for them. 
especially the boys, because they would be expected, of course, to have families and be able to take care of them. Now, these people had had trading relationships with Europeans going back hundreds of years. So when the slave trade came, they weren't really aware of it. But what the British, what they told me that the British said was this. They told them that they had reared healthy and strong children. And he said, we took that as a huge compliment because it was a struggle to raise healthy and strong children. So when they said that, we were very flattered by it. And then they said that we could guarantee, they could guarantee our boys a job if we would let them go. So the elders and the chiefs, they all got together and deliberated, just like they do over everything today. And they decided to let them go. And when they never came back, they assumed they had a good life. They didn't know anything about the well, slave how trade. How is it that he did not end up enslaved? Well, because... As the professor explained to me, he said, there's something that you folks in America, you African-Americans don't know, and that is not everybody who came was a slave. Some people came as deckhands. Some came for adventure. There was all manner of reasons that some people got on the ship and went. Not everyone was a slave. Some were navigators. Some were mariners. Because don't forget, West Africans have a history of going west. Christopher Columbus knew that, which is why before he headed west, he stopped in West Africa and picked up mariners and navigators to help him come across. He was a sailor. He had gone from port to port. You know, guys tell stories. And they exchange tales. And he had heard about that. So, and so there were a variety of circumstances that people came across. In an African colloquium class at Ohio University, I learned about Fenda Lawrence, who was married to a British guy. That's how she got the last name Lawrence. And she herself was a slave trader. She decided to give up the slave trade and take some of her slaves and family members and go west. I think they came to Charleston. Um, the captain of the ship had guaranteed her safe passage and that she would not be enslaved when she got here. So she came across that way. And apparently when she got here, she saw some of the people that she had sold into slavery. But now mind you, the slavery that had gone on been practiced for eons in Africa and elsewhere. It was not the chattel slavery that we've all been subjected to, well, a lot of us been subjected to in what became the United States of America. The professor in Ghana said to me, 
Your ancestor was a member of royalty. And I said, how do you know that? He said, only, he said, only royal families knew the exact date of the date of their birth. Only members of a royal family would know that. Huh? It's in the military record from the Revolutionary War. He said he was born June 2nd, 1756. And his name, his name, because he's God Dengbe, the God Dengbe named their boys who were born on a Wednesday, Quark. The Ashanti named their boys born on a Wednesday, Kwaku. But see, we had only heard of the Ashanti before we never heard of the God Dengbe. So when we saw that name Quark, it was like, what kind of name is that? Who is that? Well, he's Quark, God Dengbe, born on a Wednesday. And to confirm it, of course, you know, we got right on the computer when we saw his birthday to make sure that he was born on a Wednesday and he was. <laughs> what was Quark's service in the American Revolution? Well, he he um, served in the Massachusetts militia. And in his pension application, he filed it, um, I think he was 76. It was in 1832, I think it was, that he filed for his pension application after being in the Revolutionary War. And in that application... He said that he had served with the conductor. Well, when I first read that, I didn't know who in the heck the conductor was in the Revolutionary War. It was after doing a lot of other research that I realized that they they called George Washington the conductor because there was no United States of America. So, of course, he wasn't the president, but he was the conductor of the war. And Quark wrote on his application that he had served with the conductor. He knew him and he also knew Benedict Arnold and was with Benedict Arnold in New York when he left his post. I thought I would fall out on the floor when I saw that. But he entered the Massachusetts militia in 1777, I'm pretty sure it was, from Middleborough, um, Massachusetts. And, you know, when he filed for that pension, there was no record that he had served in the war. And they told him that he needed, in order to get this pension, he needed to show up with uh, three testimonials. Well, I know where I get my just in case attitude from and go overboard because Quark got five testimonials. He didn't just get three, he got five. And I tell you, my heart could not have been filled with more pride than when I read what these gentlemen had to say about my ancestor. They talked about how he was well-respected and highly regarded in his community, that he was a fine and upstanding man whose word was his bond. I tell you, in reading 
these testimonials about how they knew he had served in the war and that he had talked with other men on his farm where they all talked about their service in the Revolutionary War, how people in the community knew that he had served. I tell you, reading the testimonials of these people about my ancestor, I tell you, I get very emotional every time I read it. But with those testimonials, he got his pension when he was 79 years old. Do you think that Kwok would be serving to fight for this country as it is now? I don't know. But I can't help but tell you that as a free man in that war, He fought alongside people who were slaves. He had a choice. He could have served on the side of the British, but he didn't. He served alongside slaves. He knew George Washington. That meant he knew George Washington's man servant, his slave. These men who came to the war, they brought some of their slaves with them. He saw that. What did he think? How did he feel? Was he fighting for other Africans to be free? I tell you, I can't help. But think about all of that. Once he got here and was never going to go back and he saw what he saw. And I can't even imagine all of what he saw. But how did he feel? How did he feel? He married a man's daughter. This man, Dunbar Sampson, he served in the Revolutionary War. After the war, they ended up being next-door neighbors, and he married his daughter. And they had three daughters and a son. He had a will. He had a will drawn up. I think it was written in, let me think, 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 think. It was in 1836. 1836. He wrote a will, but it wasn't filed for a couple of years later. I think it was a year and a half or so. But anyway, listen to this. After he was in the process of getting his will written. In that process, three selectmen in the city of Stoughton, Massachusetts, they went to the court to have him declared insane and they wanted to be appointed caretakers of him because by this time they knew he had a lot. He had property. He had a house. He had outbuildings. This man had done well for himself. So in the face of his children and grandchildren, 
These people went to court to have him declared insane so they could steal all of what he had. So, Quark, he was served with a warrant to come to court, and he went. And he represented himself. And the judge, based on Quark's testimony, could tell he was not insane at all. And he ruled in Quark's favor. So these people didn't get a chance to steal his stuff. And when I read his will, I knew what stuff he had. Were these people white? Yes, they were. White selectmen in Stoughton, Massachusetts in 1836. They were trying to have him declared insane and incapable of taking care of himself. And they wanted to be appointed his guardians. I thought, what some kind of nerve it would take for them to do that when he has children and grandchildren's children standing. But this man, born in Ghana, he went to court and he represented himself before that judge. And that judge said he was not insane. You discovered Quark in 2010, and you joined the Daughters of the American Revolution just one year later. How did you go through that fast process or decision to say, I've discovered a Revolutionary War patriot who's African-born, never enslaved, fought for the American Revolution, I'm going to join the Daughters of the American Revolution. How did that come about? Well, when I was a kid, like I said, my grandmother used to tell everything about everything. And one of those everythings was Marian Anderson. And my grandmother was upset by what happened to Marion when she couldn't sing in Constitution Hall. My grandmother was just outdone that those women would treat Marion that way. I grew up hearing that story a gazillion times, and my grandmother was just outdone, upset, mad every time she told it. It was like she was with Marion when this was going on. So, I have a Revolutionary War patriot. And since then, I have discovered that we have about a dozen others. But knowing about Quark, serving in the Revolutionary War, I figured I owed it to that man to join that organization. I owed it to my grandmother who I felt was probably clapping from heaven that they kept marrying out, but I was going to go in. I was going to go in, but I had an ancestor who was from Ghana 
who survived the Middle Passage, who survived the Revolutionary War, who had relationships with individuals in his community who would eventually, their children and their children's children would eventually marry into our family. My grandmother used to say, birds of a feather flock together. I see it. And who married who? Whose grandchildren, whose children married who? I felt like I owed it to Quark and his wife to join the DAR. How did you get over the stories and the anger and resentment that your grandmother felt about how the DAR treated Marian Anderson, who did not allow her to perform as a famous black opera singer in 1939 in DAR Constitution Hall because of her race? I felt like my grandmother would no longer be upset because her granddaughter got in. How do you bring it up to people or do people bring up the topic of Marian Anderson to you when they find out that you're a DAR member? And if so, how do you respond? Well, I think they're stunned that I've even uncovered an ancestor who was in the Revolutionary War and have the documentation and then have the nerve to have about almost a dozen other family members who also served. I, you know, I think they get why I joined. They all know about Marion Anderson, but I think that people are just stunned to find out that There are those of us who have Revolutionary War patriots and that we know who they are. They're stunned that black people, is that correct that you're saying? Yeah. Have Revolutionary War patriots? Yeah, because none of us learned that in school. Now, just think about it. I have grandkids who now know it. I didn't know it. I was a grown woman when I found out they'll live their life knowing that they have an ancestor that served in a war that they learn about in their history books. They know that someone in their family was with George Washington before he was president. How did you decide that quickly to take this step to join? I think I felt it from my grandmother. I think I felt in some kind of way that she was influencing me to do it. But how did you even think of DAR? That's a society that's interesting to me that I want to join to honor my ancestor. Why was that even in the forefront of something that you wanted to do? Well, because I'm good for integrating. I have done that most of my career. I've been the first African-American here or there. What did you know about them other than Marian Anderson? I didn't. I didn't know. So what you just knew, this is a society that honors patriots of the American Revolution. They discriminated against Marian Anderson. And my grandmother used to talk about that all the time. Let me join the society. Was it as simple as that? Uh, Pretty much. And 
it was also an opportunity to learn. You know, I'm always trying to know something. You know, that's what journalists do. You know, when I first told my grandmother I wanted to be a journalist because I'm curious, she said, no, you're nosy. (laughs) That's what she said. And maybe we kind of are. But we're curious. We want to know stuff. I feel like I'm a lifelong learner. I'm 70 years old now, and I'm getting ready to earn my PhD in journalism. I always want to learn. And so I wanted to see what is this organization really about? So what have you found out? What's that answer? They welcomed me. They've been very nice to me. And I know the difference between being very nice because I'm a novelty and being very nice because somebody is genuinely nice. I think that in some kind of ways, maybe to some, I'm like a... uh, an interesting book on a coffee table that people can talk about. Maybe it's that way for some of them. No doubt they told people that they know there's an African-American woman in our chapter. I'm sure they have. In what state did you join? Ohio. Have you met other women of color in the DAR? Yes. Your story is unique compared to many stories of women of color in the DAR who descend from white patriots. And there's a handful that descend from patriots of color. Not only do you descend from a patriot of color, you descend from an African born patriot that was never enslaved. So how do you feel about the other women of color who are in the society to honor their ancestor service, but there was slavery and their ancestor was white who enslaved their ancestors in many cases. And they are a product of that. There are white people in my family who served in the war, but I'm so into identifying the black people and knowing something about them and their story that I haven't focused on those others at all. Not at all. I'm more interested in my African ancestry. I feel like they've found something in their history that connects them to the war. And they decided to focus, I guess, their energy and attention on them. Or maybe they can't find an Africa-born ancestor. Have you been active with your chapter? Oh, yeah. Have you held any committee roles or leadership roles? Yeah, I'm the librarian. This is my second go around. The librarian is actually a chapter officer position, which means you are on the board. What does that mean to you that you are on the board, an officer as a woman of color of your chapter in the Daughters of the American Revolution? I'm an example to my granddaughters. They know... Oh, grandmommy's got a DAR meeting. They know what that is. And however any of the women interpret my presence, that's on them. But I know 
I've got a right to be there. Has it changed how you view yourself as an American, knowing that you had a patriot in the American Revolution? You know, I have been made to feel like I don't belong in this country. I have been made to feel that way in my career. I have been made to feel like I'm taking someone else's seat because this seat does not belong to me. I shouldn't have it. The same way with an education. But I tell you what, there are people who have claimed this country as their own and have no relationship to a soul who fought to establish this place. None. They're Johnny-come-latelys as far as my family goes because I also have first Americans in my family. So, they may try to make me feel like I don't have a place but I know in my bones, in my soul, that people who came before me, people I descend directly from, have made it so that I belong. And no one, Just like my grandmother said, you get an education. No one can take that away from you. No one can take away from me that I am a a descendant from a founder. How many people can say that? I have transferred that knowledge to my sons and my grandchildren. So they'll never, they'll never have that feeling penetrate them in the same kind of way it penetrated me when people made me feel like I don't belong here and I had to go back to where I came from. Who are they to tell me that? Who? Who are they? to tell me that. What does being a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution mean to you? I bring recognition of peoples whose contribution has been ignored. That Forgotten Patriots book is one of the thickest you'll find. It is chock full of people like my ancestors who stepped up, who answered the call, who founded this new nation. But I'm a living and breathing, living and breathing descendant daughter 
of folk who served. So I honor them and their wives who were with them or who married them after their service but sat and listened to their stories of what they felt, what they saw, what they endured, what has left of that war in their heart and in their souls. I honor them with my presence. I'm standing up for every single solitary one of them, those men and women. I'm standing up for them. And I'm claiming my rightful spot. Thank you.